This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Later in this programme, we look at a spot of anarchy in the UK over ethics. I'm not going to deploy nuclear weapons, but I have them. But they exist. He should not poke the hornet's nest. Because there are things that you could say which would be very damaging to him. Yes. Now, that's a case raising questions about that supposedly sacrosanct obligation to protect your sources at all costs, but it's also exposed what they call government by WhatsApp, messages from one minister to colleagues which ended up influencing major decisions over a distinctly unofficial channel. We also look at RNZ's investigation that's lifted the lid this week on lobbyists and how they communicate with politicians outside the public gaze or official oversight. But first how the media handled the controversial and, as it turned out, chaotic visit of a provocative British activist. Kia ora, it's midday. A controversial anti-transgender rights activist is set to tout touchdown in Aotearoa. We will have the latest on the attempts to block her arrival. Meanwhile, female transgender athletes will be banned from taking part in international track and field events as a sports governing body takes a stand. Plus, more strikes are on the way after an overwhelming vote in favour. That was TVNZ News at midday last Friday, leading with two bits of news about transgender rights, which headlined the main news and the sports news as well. And the first of those was developing at that very moment. A judicial review in Wellington's High Court is currently underway. That began at 10am and there is currently no ruling. It's seen as a last-minute attempt to stop Posey Parker's entrance into the country. And by the time the bulletin was over, that ruling was in. And just a quick update, the attempt to block anti-transgender activist Posey Parker from entering New Zealand has just been rejected by the High Court in Wellington. Now that choice of hold on, I'm coming, as background music was presumably just a coincidence. Now many in the media pointed out that that same law had been used in the past to refuse entry to others, including a hip-hop group whose performances sparked this order overseas. But so did Kelly J. Keen Minchell, who identifies as provocateur Posey Parker, when she appeared in Australia earlier this month. So the first challenge to the media was to explain how come she's still coming here. Well, before Friday's ruling, Eddie Clark, a senior law lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington, told the New Zealand Herald's daily podcast, The Front Page, it would be hard to make a case under the current wording of the relevant part of the Immigration Act. But he said Posey Parker's track record and what happened in Australia recently did make it possible. Looking at some of the things that have happened at her rallies and the links that she's had to groups that have done some quite scary stuff overseas, that I think, means that we at least need to have this conversation right. It's perfectly reasonable to say we should have a really high standard before we exclude people, that coming to countries which we have visa waiver, uh, citizens that we have visa waiver agreements with, we should be really slow to say, no, you can't come in. But you can't look at this in the abstract. And We have excluded people under a lower bar, in my view, on this in the past. News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking had also consulted the law and characteristically, gave listeners his own take as well this week. Section 16 we're dealing with here of the Immigration Act is a high bar, high enough that a few controversial views and a lot of hand-wringing control freaks here can't scupper it. Thank the good Lord. You can't stop a person arriving here based on their previous expression of opinion or ideas. It's not that hard to understand, really, is it? Well, no, but as we've just heard, it's not as simple as he made it sound either. 
but having praised the decision to let Posey Parker in, Mike Hosking also said this. Uh, I know not of this woman any more than most of the rest of you will. I watched a bit of footage of that Melbourne rally. Well, it would pay to know a bit more surely about a person when weighing in for sure on their free speech rights outweighing any harm they could possibly cause. In upholding the original decision on Friday, Justice Gendel said that information provided by the applicants and the Crown did, in his words, appear to clearly raise some issues of public order, issues which he said the minister or the delegated decision-maker would have been unable to ignore. But properly hearing and considering all the arguments wasn't possible ahead of Parker's arrival. Now, the confirmation that Posey Parker was on her way led One News at 6 on Friday... Kia ora. good evening. Posey Parker has just touched down in New Zealand after the High Court dismissed a last-ditch attempt to stop the anti-transgender activist from coming here. And over on News Hub at 6 at the same time, Nick Truebridge was at the airport for it. Yeah, good evening, Sam. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Posey Parker's flight has just landed here in Auckland. And this kicked the story up a gear for the media in two other ways. Those appearances in Auckland and Wellington this weekend and the inevitable counter-protests would themselves be newsworthy events and the hefty ranks of those giving their opinion in the media would be working overtime on this too. Now obviously with people taking action in court and preparing to do so in the streets, this was also a divisive issue, so the next question for the media was, were significant perspectives explained, represented and aired, accompanied by reliable information and context? Well, on Morning Report, on the morning of the challenge in court, one party to it, Auckland Pride's Max Tweedy, was challenged by Kim Hill on precisely why overriding Posey Parker's rights to come and speak here could be justified. The Minister has um, the ability to do so in the interest of the public order um, and something, and to ban someone who's likely to be a threat to the public order. And we believe that the grounds that what she's demonstrated in Melbourne and the kind of uh, groups that she's associated with, but also the type of messaging that she's been sharing, um, meets that threshold as a risk to the public order. And within an hour, the woman at the centre of the story herself, Posey Parker, was also grilled by Kim Hill. You say... What do you think a motive is of a man in a woman's face? What do you think his motives might be? When you were asked... If you could let me finish the question. When you were asked about the motive... Now, putting Posey Parker on air live was a risk. RNZ couldn't be quite sure what she might say and how offensive it might be to some. And after the interview, Max Tweedy described it as reckless, alleging that Posey Parker spread dangerous and hateful misinformation and that too much had gone unchecked. He said that Posey Parker had repeatedly referred to trans women as men and hadn't been challenged, and that she had also said billionaires were backing the trans movement, though Posey Parker was pulled up by Kim Hill twice on that particular theory, and as you also heard, Posey Parker was pulled up on claims that trans women were a sexual assault threat to other women and children in women's spaces. And Kim Hill also told Parker there's no evidence that many New Zealand women were really worried about that at all. And she could have added that there's evidence transgender people here are often victims of sexual violence, but little evidence of cases of them perpetrating it. Now that was Posey Parker's only interview with mainstream news media here before her arrival, by which time some in the media were now taking sides. For example, Today FM host Lloyd Burr told his listeners he had no qualms about turning up at the planned counter-protest in Auckland. The lives of our trans community, it's been hard enough without some British person flying all the way here to kick them some more. So, 11am, Albert Park, Auckland. See you there. 
Today FM's Tova O'Brien also urged listeners to take a stand, having pressed Christopher Luxon to ban his National Party MPs from going and criticising the government for not keeping Posey Parker out. She's coming. Take a stand. We all have to. You want to be Prime Minister, dude? You definitely have to. Own it. However, Today FM's Rachel Smalley said on Thursday it was right to let Posey Parker in and government MPs shouldn't stand against her in public. And that's because you can't ban people because you disagree with them. There will be protests, sure. That is an act of democracy in action as well, though, the right to protest. However, I don't believe Labour MPs, members of the government, should be taking part in those protests. Some of the issues that are contentious relate to the rights of women, particularly where they relate to the protection and safety of women in some spaces. And so it's inappropriate for members of the government, I think, to be standing among the public and in protest of this. That is a clear statement, I think, that those politicians oppose the voices of women. But while Rachel Smalley said she'd die in a ditch over Posey Parker's rights to speak, Hawke's Bay Today's editor Chris Hyde reckoned no one needs to die anywhere over a so-called debate, which, in his words, is being foisted on us by some odd people who seem to think a lot about genitals. Chris Hyde said the arguments about things like safety and fairness in sports and even library story readings seem to dissolve under mild critique. Likewise, claims of problems at women's refuges. Fact check like this by TVNZ's Tessa Parker. No relation earlier on Friday. One you spoke to Women's Refuge earlier today, they said that they have never encountered problems of this kind and that it is in fact transgender people who are in harm's way. Similarly, Newsroom's John O'Milne said that he'd checked with Women's Refuge Chief Executive Ang Jury, who said that anecdotes about one incident at a women's refuge was, in her words, being used totally inaccurately to support this ugly argument. And with those claims about bathrooms in mind... Hawke's Bay Today's Chris Hyde pointed out in his paper, most people just usually mind their own business when they're doing their business in the bathrooms. When TVNZ Breakfast asked for viewers' feedback on Posey Parker, host Matty McLean responded like this to one who said she shared Parker's fears about trans women in women-only spaces. You are being hoodwinked by people who want you to feel unsafe and they are preying on your fear and that fear is unfounded. Listen to this. In the US, there is not a single reported instance of this kind of voyeurism occurring in states with legal protections for trans people. In 17 school districts around the country with protection for trans people, they had no problems, not one, with harassment in bathrooms or locker rooms after implementing their policies. You are being made to feel unsafe by people who want you to feel that fear. It's not there, Cathy. This has been a particularly tricky topic for journalists and presenters to cover. Most journalists and presenters believe in essential free speech and oppose undue censorship and want to be fair to others with apparently sincerely held opinions which clash with their own. Matty McLean, for example, has spoken of his own experiences of being unable to live life as a gay man himself in the past. And while it might be hard for him to be objective about Posey Parker and her claims, he would also have a pretty good sense of how such exercise of free speech can also cut across the basic rights of other people and which claims are genuinely misleading. And as it turned out, that fear of risks posed by trans women was a key concern for the founder of the outfit that flew Posey Parker out from the UK to Australia in the first place.
The same day Posey Parker arrived here, the founder of Australia's Conservative Political Action Conference told ABC Radio in Melbourne that Posey Parker's visit there had been a success in spite of the violent scenes it sparked in the city. The conversation's definitely in the uh, in the media, which is you know, we needed to do. I, I'm I'm disappointed that it's been hijacked uh, by what happened in Melbourne. You know, there's a legitimate discussion to be had here as the father of two teenage daughters having biological males in the bathrooms with them was a concern to me and it's a concern to many parents. And I think that's the conversation that you know we were hoping to stimulate and have uh, discussion around it sort of under the radar with the people that are in the media, people like yourself and I guess people like myself, but a lot of people don't know what the issues are. And I think with uh, Kelly J. Keane's uh, tour, you know, that's been elevated. Well, here the media coverage of Posey Parker has also elevated those fears of Andrew Cooper's about bathrooms, though he provided no evidence in that ABC interview to back it up, and he went on to insist that neither he nor Posey Parker had portrayed one of Australia's threatened communities as a threat without justification. Now, shortly before Posey Parker's short-lived Auckland rally on Saturday, News Hub's Nick Truebridge told viewers that he'd asked Posey Parker to back up her key claim. It is this example of trans women in female bathrooms, uh, I should say predatory trans women in female bathrooms. Now, we asked her a number of times for examples of that happening. She wasn't able to provide any, but then says what she's really talking about is the risk of that occurring. In this weekend's Herald, columnist Fran O'Sullivan noted that Posey Parker's visit had pushed aside the cost of living, climate change and a looming recession in the headlines this past week. The culture wars are set to become a defining issue in the upcoming election, she said, and the political classes have staked out differentiated positions. Meanwhile, the editorial in the same paper looked on the brighter side, seeing a chance for all to catch up on what it called the difficulties faced daily by some of our multifarious people. Now in the end, Posey Parker's Auckland rally ended up overwhelmed by the counter-protest within about half an hour. And in her own live stream from a departing police car, Posey Parker told her followers it might not be possible to hold the next one in Wellington, presumably because the outcome would probably be the same. Now Posey Parker isn't the first offshore activist to fly in and spark a hate speech versus free speech type of conflict and capture the media's attention before flying out again. And she won't be the last culture warrior to do it here either. But let's hope most media do continue to air facts along with the falsehoods and air their fears fairly when they come and express them and then show us all when there's not really that much behind the grandstanding opportunism of activists like Posey Parker. Guyan Espiner has been investigating, joins us now. Kia ora, Guyan. Kia ora. Uh, let's begin with some journalism questions 101. Who, what, why? Who wanted what section of a bill deleted and why? Yeah, this is um, Andrew Little when he was health minister. He was heavily targeted by lobbyists who wanted to get wins and gains, I guess, for clients in the pharmaceutical and natural health industries. That was Kim Hill on Morning Report on RNZ National last Thursday and RNZ's Guy and Espiner. And he'd been on Morning Report every day since Monday with stories from his series on lobbying and politics. But while Guyan would have been a familiar presence to RNZ listeners by then, his face was also on the cover of the Listener magazine for this week, alongside a teasing banner which said this. 
What really happened with Duncan Garner and John Key? So what was that till-now unresolved mystery involving the former National Party leader and the former political editor at TV3? And what did Guy and Espiner have to do with it? Well, all that was made clear inside the magazine in an extract from Guy and Espiner's new book, The Drinking Game, which is all about the business of booze and its place in our social and political life. And in that extract was an anecdote from 2008 when John Key took Duncan Garner and his TVNZ counterpart back then, Guy and Espiner, out for a night on the booze, with John Key picking up the tab, and one of the off-the-record yarns that John Key told them that boozy night ended up in a Sunday paper. Anyhow, for Guy and Espiner, the point of all that was that now, liquor is little more regulated these days than it was back then, and Guy and Espiner's now wondering what impact the habit shared by boys on the booze might have had on both alcohol regulation down the years, and also media reporting of that issue. And that was still on his mind last Monday when he told Tova O'Brien on Today FM that it wasn't just John Key who was buying the beers for the likes of him and his peers in the media back then. That hunter journalists report objectively alongside politicians who also drink heavily on the alcohol industry. Can we do it in, in the wake of your reporting today as well? Um, you know, we have to put our hands up in, in the media um, on the lobbying stuff too. I've been to many corporate box events. I, you know, there'll be lobbyists listening to, to this saying, oh, yeah, I got Guy and Espiner over to some event, some mm. cricket game or something. And I and I did do all that. I, I, I think that we probably should be, and if I, if I look back on my time, I probably could have been more rigorous with, with that stuff. And I, I do think there's a bit of sort of cone of silence thing that goes on here. Mm. And the public have got no idea about how this stuff works. Well, politicians and lobbyists alike might indeed be spluttering into their drinks now, hearing a crusader for the public right to know, realising all these years later that hospitality handed out back then could have comprised a compromise. And those claiming to be the public's ears and eyes back then must also have known it's harder to speak truth to power with your mouthful if any politician or lobbyist is picking up the tab. But this week, Guy Espinot was lifting the lid on how political lobbying works and calling for much more transparency. On Tuesday's morning report, they led off with this. The Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Andrew Curtin, previously headed up the New Zealand arm of a lobbying firm which worked for alcohol companies which pushed back against a proposed container return scheme. Mr Curtin resigned from that role on the 31st of January one day before taking up the job as Chris Hipkins' chief of staff. Just last week, six weeks after Mr Curtin started in the Prime Minister's office, the government scrapped the container return scheme. And then the Prime Minister appeared to answer questions from Kim Hill, starting with this one. This sequence of events looks a bit sus, doesn't it? Um, it's important to note that the container return scheme had already been offered up uh, for reprioritisation by David Parker, the minister responsible before Andrew Curtin had even started working in the Beehive. Just can I stop you there? And documents Guy and Espiner obtained using the Official Information Act showed that booze is still being used as a lubricant by lobbyists today. For example, he revealed that a lobbyist for Thompson Lewis was texting advisers in the office of Senior Cabinet Minister Megan Woods to invite them to a beer festival in August 2022. But this series raised questions also for the media, beyond the blandishments of a few beers. 
The first part of the series on Monday detailed the hundreds of thousands of dollars of public money being spent on lobbying firms by universities, government agencies and state-owned enterprises. And sometimes this was done to avoid or minimise awkward encounters with the media. And speaking on Monday's morning report, Guy Nespinat made the point that several of these lobbyists are all too happy to appear in the media as themselves, in spite of the potential for conflicts of interest to arise. You know, there's a pretty strong argument the public's poorly served by that, because a lot of these people also are in media roles, uh, giving media commentary. And the the public uh, at large have no idea uh, who these clients are. Now, this is an issue that's come up before, prompting RNZ to tighten up on its rules on potential conflicts of interest back in 2018. In 2020, one prominent pundit, Matthew Hooten, a regular on Nine to Noon's weekly political panel, withdrew from commentary altogether for a time after he failed to declare that he was actually working for National Party leadership hopeful Todd Muller. But the co-owner of the agency Capital Government Relations, Neil Jones, is still a Nine to Noon regular commentator. This week, Guy Nespiner reported that documents released to him revealed that Neil Jones had lobbied for countdown on alcohol sales issues. And on Thursday, Guy Nespiner told Morning Report more clients of Neil Jones had been revealed, including the tech titan Google. These documents show that he um, texted an advisor in the Internal Affairs Minister's office saying... Just wondering on behalf of Google if there's any indication when this particular paper on online content regulation is going to cabinet. The advisor plays ball and says it's going to cabinet this month. Cool, thanks, he, he responds. Again, it's interesting to see how much that they play ball with these guys. Well, it certainly is for us here at Media Watch. We've had less luck getting a heads up about the progress of the government's content regulation review. Now, last Wednesday in Midweek Media Watch on nights here on RNZ National, Hayden Donnell took a look at that and the fine line between political lobbying behind closed doors and common or garden public relations, and whether fleeting declarations like these on the air are really sufficient. Yeah, so just a quick declaration up front. We did some work with Business New Zealand on the way through our fair pay agreements. That's in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell and Susanna Lautawa, in which they also talked about how US media boosted the war in Iraq, which began 20 years ago and ended up regretting it, though not really acknowledging it. And they also covered the kick-off of a new online outlet seeking to, among other things, provoke the woke. I was thinking to myself, what song could I play to explode the brains <laughs> of the woke? And I came up with this. That's Midweek Media Watch, and if you missed it, that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier this week, the Prime Minister told RNZ that any citizen or group can get their concerns in front of a government minister too, and they have equal opportunity to submit on legislation or appear before select committees at Parliament to influence decisions. But this week, Guy Espiner cast doubt on claims that our system is as transparent enough on lobbying as it needs to be, because not everything is discoverable if you don't know what to ask for. And his investigation hinged on what he was eventually able to discover using the Official Information Act. I've seen thousands of emails, text messages and even encrypted signal communications between lobbyists, politicians and their staff. 
And on Thursday, Guy Nespiner told Morning Report about a specific instance of this involving lobbyist and political commentator Neil Jones. Uses the encrypted messaging app Signal, which I think is interesting in itself, to communicate with ministerial advisers in little office when he was health minister. Now, in the UK, the channels that ministers use to communicate outside of their official ones with advisers and lobbyists and how they end up influencing major decisions was also at the heart of a major scoop that's still running in the press there and which has also sparked big debates about so-called government by WhatsApp and also what's fair and ethical in the media. And when this yarn broke in Britain earlier this month, Month, the revelations also led the New Zealand Herald's World News section here. The former British Health Secretary wanted to deploy a new COVID variant to frighten the pants off the public and ensure that they complied with lockdown. And that was according to The Lockdown Files, a series in the Sunday Telegraph, a British paper that, along with its stablemate The Daily Telegraph, is one of the New Zealand Herald's international news partners. The Herald website had another story that called this a sinister plan to frighten people into complying with lockdown. Now, the Sunday Telegraph's Lockdown Files exclusive in the UK was based on exclusive access to more than 100,000 WhatsApp messages sent between Matt Hancock and his officials and others. But the remarkable thing about this is that Matt Hancock was himself the source of those 100,000 messages. Hancock handed them all over to journalist and biographer Isabel Oakshot, a former political editor of the Daily Mail and Sunday Times, because Hancock had engaged her to write a book about his handling of the COVID crisis. Now, the Matt Hancock book, called The Pandemic Diaries, didn't fly off the shelves this year as he might have hoped, but the newspapers serialising the scandals in his WhatsApp messages certainly have, and they've also sparked a big row about ethics. Isabel Oakshot was unrepentant about an apparently stone-cold betrayal of her source on the BBC's version of Morning Report, the Today programme. It was a book that he wanted. I well, didn't leave anything out. Responsibilities. I... actually broke a written legal agreement, a non-disclosure agreement. My responsibilities, having finished that book with him are now to the public interest. Did you break, the public did you break interest, an NDA? I mean, that's a matter of public okay. record. In that interview, Isabel Oakshot pushed back hard against accusations that she's a muckraker for hire or that, as a vocal opponent of COVID restrictions, she was now making mischief in a paper that shared her views. This is about the millions of people, every one of us in this country, that were adversely affected by the catastrophic decisions to lock down this country repeatedly, often on the flimsiest of evidence for political and reasons. Yet you helped Matt Hancock write a book justifying uh, all why, those very why? decisions. Why? Why? Because I wanted to get to the truth of it. Isabel Oakshot was not at all shy about her conduct in a fuller interview on the UK news podcast, The News Agents. And in this part of the interview, she went on to threaten to damage Nick Hancock even more. You can see the reputational risks associated with it. Mm. I'm not going to deploy nuclear weapons, but I have them. But they exist. These nuclear... What, about him and his behaviour? I'm just not going to go there, OK? He should not poke the hornet's nest. Because there are things that you could say which would I'm be very not... damaging to him. Yes. Paul Lashmar is a former investigative reporter in the UK and now a journalism professor at City University in London and an expert on leaks in digital era journalism. Well, you know, I'm used to dealing with ethical questions, um, but this one's a really complicated one because, quite frankly, uh, Isabel Oakshot is a real one-off and with a track record of revealing information about from her sources, uh, breaking confidentiality agreements. This had resulted in uh, one... Uh, senior economist in this country, having to go to prison because she'd admitted to 
Isabel Oakshot off the record that she had uh, taken her husband's traffic offence points. This meant that both of them were then prosecuted. But she did it again with another case. And so I don't know what Matt Hancock must have been thinking, if he does, uh, when he decided to use her as his ghostwriter. Why was this material leaked and why and what was the intent of it? It certainly wasn't leaked in what I would call straightforward uh, journalistic way. It had an agenda. And the agenda was to demonstrate that lockdown was a complete mess. This has been quite a sort of recurring theme on the further edges of the right in Britain, that lockdown was a disaster, mainly because I think they perceived that it damaged the economy and did more damage. And in this, lockdown did more harm than good, in their view. Uh, I, I guess there, there really is an interest in knowing, isn't there, how these decisions were made. And if all of this is going on outside of what people might have regarded as you know, discoverable uh, and legitimate uh, government channels, then that perhaps strengthens her claim that this really is in the public interest. Distasteful as the whole thing is in many ways, the material is important. If I'd been an editor of a um, newspaper, I would have uh, felt obliged to have made quite a big thing of this because it's very revealing. It is in the public interest. Ultimately, you have to say that what's gone into the public domain has told us something about modern politicians. But the banality of some of these exchanges, the, you know, the cynicism, it just is off the scale. It's where you see them trying to present things to the public and makes them look good rather than actually is in necessarily in the best interest of the, of their, of, of the citizens of the country, you know? All this stuff, uh, the stuff, the, the WhatsApp messages, would they have come out in some sort of inquiry anyway? We don't know is sort of the answer. Certainly the uh, inquiry will, get to, will have got to see them, but I don't know they would have ended up in the public domain. You know, overall... You know, they should have been published. Those bullish interviews that Isabel Oakeshott is doing where she's warning she has other stuff which she thought there was limited public interest in but that she would release, which would be damaging for him if pushed. She even referred to it as nuclear weapons. This is unethical and, and worrying, isn't it? Uh, well, it is because it's selective to an agenda. And I don't know whether the editor of the Daily Telegraph has seen all of them and what that what their input is, uh, but it seems to me that it's either or it should all be or nothing unless there's something very personal that really doesn't have any public interest dimension. I mean, in a way, that, that protection of sources is interesting because this is almost the reverse of that. So journalists often have get a damaging a leak of something that's damaging to someone and the journalist is being used really to damage a political opponent to, and the real yeah. public interest will be well who the hell is leaking that information that's that's the real story and of course the journalist will say well I must protect my source couldn't possibly say where it came yeah, from well, uh, but this is the uh, reverse of that where she's willingly telling you yeah. that in order to reveal what she thinks the true public interest is uh, we cannot survive without sources we cannot exert our fourth escape role if we can't um, protect sources. And anything that endangers that, of course, has an impact on journalism. It, it, it is worrying, although, I, as I say, this is a bit more complicated. But protecting sources is what we do. Uh, it's the, probably the most important thing we do. If necessary, you know, we carry the cannon over it. Well, finally, Paul, you have experience as an investigative journalist of uh, dealing with leaks and sources in the pre-digital age. Um, you've written about uh, long hours in pubs cultivating sources <laughs> and then now then of course digital era makes it a bit different into the era where millions of official documents or private communications could be stored on 
one uh, USB drive smaller than half of your thumb. So do we need new rules or conventions to deal with, you know, this massive digital information that can be uh, disseminated so easily? There are already laws that affect a lot of this. And certainly the laws that have been brought in to protect national security are draconian in, in, in Britain. You know, you, you know, the, it's much easier to send a journalist to prison if they are perceived to have breached national security than it was 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it, it, it's, it's oppressive, quite frankly. But ethics is, is, lies in the realms of making personal decisions, so it's complicated. Uh, what uh, Isabel Oakeshott has done is acted in the public interest, but in a very, very um, uh, unpleasant way. You know, when I read what Matt Hancock and his colleagues say, and I think, well, these were people run, you know, they were trying to do some good things, don't get me wrong, but the way they went about some stuff really is depressing that this is the standard we have come to in terms of our politicians and our civil service, that their level of conversation is like, well, you know, locker room, really. It's, it's, it's sort of like teenage banter in part. You know, I, when I communicate with friends, we, we say things that we probably wouldn't want people to say publicly, but this is beyond that, anything like that. That was Paul Lashmar, a former investigative reporter in the UK who's now a journalism professor at City University in London. He's also a founder of the UK's Bureau for Investigative Journalism and an expert on leaks in digital era journalism. And incidentally, there's no sign yet of Nick Hancock seeking any legal remedy from Isabel Oakeshott for the breach of any non-disclosure agreement. And the Sunday and Daily Telegraph newspapers continue to spin stories out of those lockdown files, saying that they shine a light on what they call government by WhatsApp and how people in power really reacted to events at a time of crisis. And as a result of this, journalists and others will probably specify WhatsApp and other chat groups along with official channels when they're issuing requests for official information under our Official Information Act. But for now, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch during nights and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.